0: If, uh, if you're so inclined, you could open your Bibles to uh, the Bibles in the pew to First Kings uh, 18. Uh, as we go along, every once in a while, we'll mention something out there and you can check and see if it's true. I would pray briefly. Lord, thank you for this time that we can think about you. We can listen for your voice in the words that are spoken. Spirit, bless us. Move in us and among us. Uh, Keep us paying attention to you and to what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, First thing is to draw a map. This is the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. You'll notice that it makes a sea. About halfway down, a little bit farther, is the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea. That's basically Israel, from the bottom of that piece of water to the top of this piece of water. As you come around that sea, almost halfway down, not quite, is a town named Tyre. And it's twin town, 10 miles away, Sidon. (laughs) Very important shipping places back uh, in the day, and also a center of Canaanite gods. Um, the most famous of which is uh, is Baal, but I must confess that I say Baal, so just work with me because I think I'm just going to say Baal the whole time. All right, and I mean, you know, what other people mean by Baal. During the second millennium BC, the people who lived a bit north of what would later become Israel had a bunch of gods that they believed could help them. One of the gods was the one you go to if you had a growth problem. His name was Baal. Baal was in charge of rainstorms, and as such, was seen as the god of fertility. The dirt in the Middle East was fine, The snag was that you had to get adequate moisture on that dirt, consistent moisture, in order to get constant growth. In this predominantly semi-arid region, making it rain was vitally important. Therefore, Baal's vaulted position in the eyes of the people Besides, church was fun. The worship of Baal, as Pastor Sean has described, was your basic, orgiastic, lurid, temple prostitute-type affair, especially during the days in the early spring when it was time to wake up or call back to our place this one who managed the rain. So, farmers who worshiped Baal participated vigorously in helping fertile up the land, so to speak, and their community. Now, to be fair, the Canaanites and others who called on Baal to get them rain were not opposed to people worshiping other gods too whatever God a person might believe helpful was fine. For example, the Hebrews talked about the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to which the Baal people generally took a live and let live stance. But then there was this one drought that Baal wasn't fixing. First, let's remember that the Israelites didn't always live in this land of Canaan. They had come there from Egypt, escaped, actually. They were slaves over there in Egypt. For their exodus, they raced through the Red Sea, and then they did a tour in the desert. Forty years. That's when, as a nation, they received a call from the Lord God. They would be his people, he promised. And he would be their God. Their leader, Moses, delivered to them from the Lord God the Ten Commandments. For today, I'd like us to call this way of thinking the right opinion. The commandments briefly outline The Lord God's opinion on how things should go. He explained that he wanted his people to live their lives by trusting in him and believing his right opinion was good, healthy, peaceful. Something they could take to heart and aim toward doing as a loving response to God and to their neighbor. Uh, We mentioned one odd thing. Well, at least it was rare for the times back then. You see, the Lord God said that he was to be their only God. He even mentioned he was jealous. Baal's not like that. Baal's got a more live and let live view. So, when these nomadic Israelites took over Canaan, they would naturally have paid attention to the farming techniques as well as the cultural practices of their predecessors who were now their near neighbors, those Baal worshiping Canaanites up the coast. The Lord God had instructed them, the Israelites, <clears throat> to purge the Canaanites from the land, that is, remove them and remove their ways of doing things, of thinking about things. We're going to call that, for today, the wrong opinion. Just before the Israelites went in to take over Canaan, Joshua specifically warned them against following other gods. Choose ye this day whom ye shall serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Woohoo! the Israelites all said. That was then. Now, years later, Joshua's warning seems far away. The Israelites, it turns out, were sometimes influenced by the worldview and practices of the people living near them. In this milieu where surrounding folks believed in an I'm okay, you're okay God who was in charge of the rain, I mean, what could it hurt if a Hebrew dude wanted to try to at least keep his options open? Bal wouldn't care if you just gave him a little wave. There was a temptation to just keep Bal on the side. On on my side. He's the rain god. Then things got worse after the wedding. Isn't that a great sentence? Around 870 B.C., evil Israelite King Ahab marries a princess from Town, up the coast. She lived right in between Tyre and Sidon. Her name was Jezebel. Her family was really, really religious. You know, all bow this and bow that. Kind of like Tebow. Tebow? Jezebel moves into the palace in northern Israel and commences to putting up shrines to Baal in high places right there inside the borders of northern Israel. She even tears down the altars that the Israelites had been using to sacrifice to the Lord God. In this circumstance Elijah shows up. His name means my God is the Lord. In 1 Kings 17, verse 1, nobody knows who this guy is. He just shows up. The Lord instructed him to tell King Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Yeah, yeah. There's a good chance the king did not take him very seriously at that point. For all we know, Elijah shouted it out while the king's coach was like riding by. Besides, Ahab and his religious wife had another god they could go to if they needed some rain. But then, it did not rain for three straight years. 1 Kings 18.1 after a long time, in the third year, the word, of the, God, the word of God came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Ahab meets Elijah. 1 Kings eighteen seventeen. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and followed the Baals." Then Elijah outlines a fire and rain contest they're going to have on Mount Carmel. I think you're all familiar with the story, so I won't tell it over again. One part I want to emphasize today is the talking to that the Israelites got from Elijah as things were just starting up. 1 Kings 18.21 Elijah went before the people and said How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. The phrase here, then Elijah went before the people, is more than just him walking over by where they were. You know, it's not the walking over part, really. The phrase has the connotation of then Elijah got in their faces hey come here I'm talking to you yeah how long you guys going to waver between two opinions no response nothing The phrase, Waver between two opinions, interestingly, translates a Hebrew expression which literally reads, Hobble around between two crutches. Remember junior high? Every other month, someone in junior high Had a broken leg. Remember how during lunch someone else would take the kid's crutches and start trying them out around the lunchroom? If the crutches were a little too tall for the kid who was trying them out, he would kind of swing one way and he'd start, he'd swing the other, right? He'd start doing the launch thing. Do you know the launch? lunge This Hebrew phrase about the two crutches has the feeling of lunge of uncontrolled if you will lunging Yo team Elijah was saying How long are you going to lunge back and forth between two opinions There's Baal There's a Lord God. Choose one. Serve him. Any questions? The people said nothing. Let's for a moment talk wavering theory. If there is no right opinion, it logically follows that there is no importance to what I choose. Which then means there is at least subjectively no wavering. Yeah, I know. It's kind of warm. I'm going to read that again because I want us to, whoever wants to, to think about this wavering closely. If there is no right opinion, it logically follows that there's no importance to what I choose, which means there is at least subjectively, from my perspective, no wavering. As I write this, Last night I had rice and beans for supper. It was really good. Today I had chicken salad, a chicken salad sandwich. It was really good. No wavering. But What if in April I had gone to a week-long seminar with some friends on the wisdom and benefits of practicing vegetarianism? And what if on the last day I went forward during the call and I signed a pledge card and was given a bracelet that said, What would Jesus eat? If I committed myself to the practice of vegetarianism after it had dawned on me that vegetarianism is the right opinion, a vegan friend could enter the kitchen when I'm halfway through my chicken sandwich and say, how long will you waver between two opinions? What, you only go meatless until Claire makes her special chicken salad? it could be viewed from this perspective that I had made one wise choice and then a subsequent unwise choice that indeed I had been lunging around in my eating habits. But from my perspective, I don't see it as wavering because I don't believe vegetarianism is necessarily the right opinion. It certainly Odd choice. But hey, not everyone has to submit to its dictates. Come on. If there is no right opinion, it logically follows that there is no importance to what I choose, which means there is, at least subjectively, no wavering. In closing... I would like to offer some ideas for us to consider in this context. Many people around us do not believe there is a right opinion, or at least they do not believe the right opinion is the Bible. There's an article in the Atlantic Monthly of January 2013 entitled, A Million First Dates, How Online Dating is Threatening Monogamy. In it, informed and likable techies make statements about how, because of online dating, monogamy and the old thinking about commitment will be challenged very harshly. Quote, the rise in online dating will mean an overall decrease in commitment. Quote, marriage will become obsolete. And while we can all agree that sites like morefishinthesea.com, that was in the article, may exacerbate certain practices, we would hold that these practices start at root not with not believing there is a right opinion. Monogamous Christian marriage, quote, until death us do part, is seen as an option, like vegetarianism. It's a good one, and a respectable tr- choice, and many make that choice. Cool, dude. You want to choose to get married for life? Go right ahead. If you excuse me, brother... My modem needs a restart. It occurred to me this week that when I was a kid, those who opposed God and apple pie were seen by some in the church as rebellious, mean and nasty. Today, most folks don't feel like they are rebelling against anything. I'm not rebelling against vegetarianism. Most folks just believe in an I'm okay, you're okay God mixed in with Rodney King's can't we all just get along? I think we need to continue to pray for and practice ways to care for folks, ways that do not start with arguing with them about whether or not there is truth, a right opinion. Secondly, in this environment, we would be wise to tell our children stories that show we believe there is a right opinion while explaining to them that many folks around us don't yet think so. Furthermore, we must convey that Jesus wants to hold our hand gently to help us walk a little more like him and a little less like the kid in the cafeteria lunging around on the crutches. And lastly, we should probably, as a practice, not wait until the next fire and rain contest to listen for a prophetic voice. I think we can hear that voice at Coffee Break Bible Study, at Youth Group, from across the kitchen table, or in the Bible. There is a right opinion, and we do need to have the truth get in our face from time to time. Let's finish with Elijah. Finger in the air. How long will you waver... Between two opinions, no response. He continues. Baal or the Lord? Tell you what, the one who lights the fire, he's God. This time the people respond. What you say is good. Well, we all know who rained down the fire. It was beyond fire. 1 Kings 18.36 Elijah prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and Burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. And it also licked up the water in the trench. When the people saw this, they fell on their faces and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Would you join me in singing A Mighty Fortress? is our God.